if you have your Bibles, to open them to Ezekiel chapter 17. Ezekiel chapter 17. From chapter 12 through chapter 24, the Lord speaking through Ezekiel makes the case that the sins of Israel back in Jerusalem and Judah are deserving of all the terrible judgment that will come their way. This is something that the exiles are having real problems with. Yes, they've done bad things. Yes, they should be punished. But what Ezekiel talks about seems extreme. They think that it's, they haven't done, it's not worthy of such punishment. Last week we looked at chapter 16, in which we have uh, sort of a series of vignettes which begins with a baby girl being abandoned after having been born in the field and a traveler passes by and rescues her and then raises her, ultimately marries her, um, gives her everything, and then she decides that she wants to be promiscuous. She wants to be with every man that goes by. This is the story of Israel, how that God redeemed her and gave her everything, entered into covenant with her, And then she decided she wanted to worship false gods. But as we saw at the end of the chapter, it does end with a word of grace. And this is something we find time after time thus far in the book of Ezekiel. Yes, there is judgment coming, but there is also a word of grace. Today we will look at chapters 17 and 18, which deal with two different issues. Chapter 17 deals with what will happen to the king in Jerusalem, Zedekiah, even though he's not mentioned by name, and why it will happen to him. Just some background so you know historically where we are. In 609 BC, Josiah, who was a good man, a righteous king, uh, was killed in battle by Necho II of Egypt. And he was replaced by Jehoahaz, who was captured by the king, King Necho and taken to Egypt and someone was put in his place Jehoiakim Um, Jehoiakim was a vassal to Egypt until 605 when Egypt was defeated by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem Jehoiakim switched allegiances because after all Babylon was stronger than Egypt he paid tribute from the treasury in Jerusalem gave them some of the vessels from the temple and sent sort of the cream of the crop, including Daniel and the three Hebrew children. Four years later, he switches allegiances back to Egypt, and the Babylonians come and they invade, and uh, Jehoiakim is, in fact, uh, killed. Jehoiakim replaces him. It seems rather convoluted, but in reality... uh, There's a a method to this. There's the first group that goes into exile, and now in 597, it's the second group. Ezekiel's in the second group. After they go into exile, Nebuchadnezzar puts somebody on the throne. His name is Zedekiah. He is a puppet king. He does whatever the king of Babylon tells him to do. But in his infinite wisdom and I'm being sarcastic, Zedekiah decides to rebel against Babylon, a world power. He thinks that he can successfully uh, rebel against this nation. The result will be that Jerusalem will be destroyed, 
the temple will be totally destroyed. That's what Ezekiel is prophesying here. That's what is being spoken about here in chapter 17. We have a parable, we have the meaning of the parable, and then we have a word of grace again, a promise of better days to come. Unlike some parables, we are actually told what this one means. Okay? And because we live after the fact, we know in fact how it played out. Okay? One more thing. I call it a parable, but the ESV, I think, calls it an allegory or a riddle. Uh, the word that is used in Hebrew actually means something that is enigmatic that needs to be explained. And the explanation is, in fact, given here. So, by the way, today we'll be reading both chapters, not necessarily with a lot of explanation. Okay, so bear with me. Verse number one of chapter 17. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set forth an allegory and tell the house of Israel a parable. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. A great eagle with powerful wings, long feathers, and full plumage of varied colors came to Lebanon. Taking hold of the top of a cedar, he broke off its topmost shoot and carried it away to a land of merchants, where he planted it in a city of traders. He took some of the seed of your land and put it in fertile soil. He planted it like a willow by abundant water. And it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots remained under it. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out leafy boughs. But there was another great eagle with powerful wings and full plumage. The vine now sent out its roots toward him from the plot where it had been planted and stretched out its branches to him for water. It had been planted in good soil by abundant water so that it would produce branches, bear fruit, and become a splendid vine. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Will it thrive? Will it not be uprooted and stripped of its fruit so that it withers? All this new growth will wither. It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it up by the roots. Even if it is transplanted, will it thrive? Will it not wither completely when the east wind strikes it, wither away in the plot where it grew? Well, I think it's safe to say, uh, without the explanation that follows, we had no clue what Ezekiel is talking about. You could come up with various possibilities, um, but without the explanation, we are completely in the dark. But we need not be in the dark because an explanation is given in verses 11 through 21. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Say to this rebellious house, do you, know not, do you not know what these things mean? Say to them, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and carried off her king and her nobles, bringing them back with him to Babylon. Then he took a member of the royal family and made a treaty with him, putting him under oath. He carried away the leading men of the land or he also carried away the leading men of the land. So the kingdom would be brought low, unable to rise again, surviving only by keeping his treaty. So this is the first part of the parable, where this powerful, this eagle, this great eagle with uh, great feathers and plumage comes in, and it takes off the top of a cedar. Uh, in Lebanon, we're like, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about Jerusalem. Well, it's a parable. It's a riddle. It is enigmatic. But now it is explained that, in fact, this is talking about when Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar came in 605 and took away Daniel and the others, as well as Jehoiakim. He planted them in Babylon, and there they prospered. Okay? Verse 5. 
He took some of the seed of your land and put it in fertile soil. He planted it like a willow by abundant water, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine. This is in the parable, okay? But then the king rebelled. Look at verse number 15. But the king rebelled against him by sending his envoys to Egypt to get horses and a large army. Will he succeed? Will he who does such things escape? Will he break the treaty and yet escape? As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, he shall die in Babylon, in the land of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he despised and whose treaty he broke. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great horde will be of no use or no help to him in war when ramps are built and siege works erected to destroy many lives. He despised the oath by breaking the covenant because he had given his hand and pledge and yet did all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. As surely as I live, I will bring down on his head my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will spread my net for him and he will be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and execute judgment upon him there because he was unfaithful to me. All his fleeing troops will fall by the sword and the survivors will be scattered to the winds. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. Long story short, the rebellion will in fact fail. Zedekiah would be captured, his eyes would be put out, he would be taken to Babylon, and that is where he would die. Um, His defeat, I think, is made uh, easier, as we read in the parable that you know, at this point, because it's dried and withered, a person can pull it out by the roots. It, it, it's not that difficult. And so Nebuchadnezzar is, in fact, able to defeat um, the Israelites in Jerusalem. But the question we must ask is, why did this happen to Zedekiah? After all that we've seen, like in chapter 16 and earlier, we'd say, oh, it's because of the idolatry. It's because of the, the idols and the false gods. But in this chapter, in chapter 17, idols don't enter into the picture at all. So why is it that Zedekiah is condemned? Why is he being judged? What is his sin? He broke his word to Nebuchadnezzar. He broke his oath. He broke the treaty. If you look at verses 18 and 19, he despised the oath by breaking the covenant because he had given his hand in pledge and yet did all these things. He shook on it, but then he went back on his word. The implication is here that any agreement that the people of God enter into, any oath or obligation that they incur are as binding as if they made it to God himself. I hope you heard that. Any promise we make Any agreement we enter into, even if it is with a pagan like Nebuchadnezzar, God sees it as making an an oath, a covenant with God himself. It probably sounds strange to us because I would say that we might consider somebody who pulls a fast one and gets a great deal and sort of tricks the other person is actually quite clever, quite cunning. And we would be inclined to say, wait a minute, you cheated me, so our agreement is null and void. It's canceled. It's annulled. It doesn't count. And yet, a principle we find in the Old Testament 
that I must confess I find disturbing, and yet I think it is very clear. And that is, if you enter into an agreement, you must keep the agreement, even if the other person deceived you. Three stories illustrate this. The first is the story of Isaac when he gave the blessing to Jacob. You may remember, Isaac is the son of Abraham. He had twin sons. Esau was the firstborn. He was Isaac's favorite. Jacob was the secondborn. He was Rebekah, his mother's favorite. Well, the custom was that the blessing was to go to the firstborn. So it was to go from Abraham to Isaac to Esau. Well, Rebekah heard that uh, Isaac said, you know, I, I think I'm about to die. I better give the blessing to Esau before I die. So Esau went out to hunt and get some wild game because that's what Isaac liked. And she helped her son Jacob deceive Isaac. Isaac was blind. So he put on his brother's clothes. He put on uh, goat skin because Esau was a hairy man and, and Jacob wasn't. And he deceived his father. By the way, Isaac would live another 20 years. So it wasn't actually time for him to die. But this is what he said. May, the, may God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. And then Jacob left. He got the blessing. Then Esau came in. His father Isaac asked him, who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came in. I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. I would be tempted to say, no, 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 no. Jacob deceived. He lied. So that that doesn't count. It's going to be a do-over, okay? And yet, the biblical principle is, if you enter into an agreement, even if it is by deception, the agreement stands. Isaac was clear. Indeed, he will be blessed. He took your blessing. The second story, again, involves Jacob, but this time Jacob is on the receiving end of the deception. He escapes, well, you know, his mother says, go to my brother Laban's place in Haran, which is in Mesopotamia, and because Esau wants to kill you. So he goes there, he falls in love with a cousin, Rachel. She's beautiful. She has an older sister, Leah. Yeah, not so pretty. Jacob says to Laban, I want to marry your daughter, Rachel. And Laban's like, listen, we're family. Jacob says, I will work for her for seven years. And so for seven years he does. And so it's time for the wedding. They have the marriage uh, celebration. Jacob goes in. And if you read in Genesis, it says, when morning came, there was Leah. (laughs) Jacob was shocked. I agreed to marry Rachel, not Leah. His father-in-law had substituted the daughters. We would insist the marriage is annulled. It was entered into by fraud. But that's not what happens. Leah is his wife. 
And then he marries Rachel as well. The third story is that of the Gibeonites. This is found in the book of Joshua. Joshua had led Israel into the promised land and they were defeating. They defeated Jericho, they defeated Ai. And there's a town called Gibeon. And they've heard about this. They're like, we're next on the list. We've got to come up with a strategy. And so what they do, this is, uh, it says, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, make a treaty with us. And so they did. The men of Israel sampled their provisions but did not inquire of the Lord. The leadership did not ask God. They went based on their their senses. Yeah, this is old bread. These people must be from a far country. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. (laughs) Gibeon's just right over the hill. So the Israelites set out on the third day, came to their cities, their cities, Gibeon, Kifra, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. But the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. I think some of us would say, Are you kidding me? These people lied. They deceived. You, any contract entered, entered into and that person committed a fraud, all bets are off. But biblically, that's not the way it works. And as I say, I struggle with this because, I mean, if somebody lies to you and you enter into an agreement, are you still bound to keep it? Apparently so. With the case of Zedekiah, there was no deception. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar didn't lie to him. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar didn't say, oh, whatever, we're from a far country, we're a weak power, we just want to make an agreement with you. Everything was out in the open. And yet Zedekiah broke the oath. We have some remnants of this, by the way, in our culture. When someone swears to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. There is a sense in which God is my witness. I'm telling the truth. Or if you put your hand on the Bible and you swear to tell the truth, you take an oath. And in Ezekiel 17, we learn that any promise you make, even if it is to a pagan, you're bound to keep. Because it is as though you are making a promise to God. That's how God sees it. And if you break it, then God's not pleased with you. And he was not pleased with Zedekiah. Judgment was coming because he had broken his word. But then there's a word of promise for the future. Look, if you would, at verses 22 through 24. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. 
On the mountain heights of Israel I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of all kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the field will know that I, the Lord, will bring down the tall tree, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. In keeping with the first parable, it is not Nebuchadnezzar, it isn't Babylon who will take this, it is the Lord who will take a remnant out of Israel, he will plant them, and in fact, they will thrive. Chapter 18 goes in a very, very different direction. It's still seeking to explain why judgment, righteous judgment, should come on the people back home in Judah. The principle is laid down in verses 1 through 4. Look at it, if you would. Ezekiel 18, 1 through 4. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For every living soul belongs to me, the father as well as the son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. Apparently there was a proverb, and we find it, by the way, quoted in Jeremiah as well. Uh, Jeremiah 31. In those days people will no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. You know, if you eat something sour, you know, and you you pucker up, you know, it's well, the proverb was the fathers eat it, but the children are the ones who get all puckered up. Okay, they're the ones whose teeth are set on edge. As much as to say what the fathers do, the children reap the consequences. And God says, no, actually the soul that sins is the one that will die. Both Jeremiah, who's back in Jerusalem, and Ezekiel, who is in Babylon, they see this as a pernicious proverb. That in fact what it did was led the people to a sense of fatalism and irresponsibility. The people in, in Babylon are like, hey, we're here because of what our forefathers did. It's not our fault. They ate the sour grapes. We're suffering the consequences. One could also say that the people in Jerusalem were saying, listen, if anything bad happens, it's not our fault. It's because of what our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers, all the fathers before us. Instead of having a sense of responsibility, like worshiping idols, they're like, no, it's not, it's not our fault. It's because of what our ancestors did. Why would people think this? Why would they think this? Well, there are two good reasons. First of all, if you read in Exodus the commandments, the Ten Commandments, we read, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, that is idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punish, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
In Lamentations 5-7, we read, Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their punishment. So this didn't just come out of thin air. I mean, this is, in fact, part of what we find in the law. Secondly, it's what we hear from Ezekiel earlier in the book of Ezekiel. His contention thus far has been that the suffering of the exiles are the result of the sins of those who have come before them. The persistent rebellion, their idolatry, their unfaithfulness. The rebellious house of Israel. So Ezekiel has told them that the reason that they are in exile is because of the accumulated disobedience of their ancestors. Think of Daniel and the three Hebrew men with him. They were righteous men. Why are they in exile? One could say, well, it's because of the sins of those who came before them. One would say, one might be inclined to say, that it seems to be that God is unjust. That God is simply allow, allowing judgment to fall on those who may not have done anything wrong. That is, that the, the children, the descendants, are suffering the consequences of the actions of their ancestors. What we find in Ezekiel chapter 18 is that everyone is responsible for their own actions and will be judged based on their own actions. This is not to say that what we saw in the Ten Commandments is not valid. There is, in fact, communal responsibility. There's corporate responsibility. You may remember the story of Achan, who stole from Jericho, and when they went into the next battle, Israel was defeated because of one man's sin. So there is this sense that if somebody within the congregation sins, the whole congregation is in danger. But, as Ezekiel will show, this is not the only fact. There is the fact that, yes, there's corporate responsibility. It's not the only fact. God's redeemed community is a nation of righteous and repentant individuals. Each one, as an individual, is responsible before God. It seems that Ezekiel's audience is hiding behind this unbalanced view of responsibility. They're like, it's not our fault. We're suffering, it's not our fault. And Ezekiel's like, well, actually, you will answer to God for what you have done. There are three cases to illustrate the principle that we saw in the first four verses. The first is, you have a righteous man. Okay, look if you would at verses five through nine. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look at to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or lie with a woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend at usury or take excessive interest. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between man and man. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. So this is the first case. You have an individual, a righteous man. He doesn't do these things, and he does these things. He is a righteous man, and we are told that he will surely live. So that's case number one. Case number two, you have a righteous father 
but a wicked son. Verse 10. Suppose he has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things, though the father has done none of them. He eats at the mountain shrines. He defiles his neighbor's wife. He oppresses the poor and needy. He commits robbery. He does not return what he took in pledge. He looks to the idols. He does detestable things. He lends at usury and takes excessive, excessive interest. Will such a man live? He will not. Because he has done all these detestable things, he will surely be put to death and his blood will be on his own head. So he's got a good dad, a righteous dad, the man through five through nine. But the son is wicked. Can you say, well, my dad's a good guy. God won't touch me. And the Lord says, no. You're responsible for your actions. Okay? He will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. This is on you because of the wicked things you did. The third case is the reverse. You have a righteous son, but a wicked father. Verse 14. But suppose this son has a son who sees all the sins his father commits. And though he sees them, he does not do such things. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look at the, to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He does not oppress anyone or require a pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He withholds his hand from sin and takes no usury or excessive interest. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. He will not die for his father's sins. He will surely live. But his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among the people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of, the fa- of his father? Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The, righteous of the righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. So we see in these three cases, the righteous man will live, the wicked son of the righteous father will die, and the righteous son of a wicked father will live. The principle is clear in verse number 20. The soul who sins is the one who will die. A son will not share in the guilt of his father, and a father will not share in the guilt of his son. The righteous man will be seen as righteous, The wicked man will be charged with his wickedness. But again, this is not the end of the story. There is the possibility of grace and forgiveness. Look at verse 21. But if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he has committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. None of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him because of the righteous things he has done. He will live. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? But if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked man does, will he live? None of the righteous things he has done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness he is guilty of and because of the sins he has committed, he will die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear, O house of Israel, is my way unjust? 
Is not your ways, is it not your ways that are unjust? If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin, he will die for it. Because of the sin he has committed, he will die. But a wicked man, but if a wicked man turns from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he will save his life. Because he considers all the offenses he has committed and turns away from them, he will surely live. He will not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you. Each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. It seems pretty straightforward. If a person is wicked but they repent, they in fact will be forgiven. But if you have a righteous person who decides, yeah, I think I'm going to go the other way, they can't say, well, I used to be a good guy. I used to do the right thing. No. You, in fact, will answer for your sins. And the people in Israel are like, this, this is not fair. You know, this is, God is unjust. And God's like, actually, no, I'm not. He's not unjust. The question is asked in verse number 23, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And it's answered in verse number 32, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. I think this is an astounding thing. It also is clear evidence that we are not God. (laughs) Because there is a deep, dark part of us that in fact would take pleasure in the death particularly of someone who has done something wicked. But God derives no pleasure from judging for putting anyone to death. The answer is repent and live. Repent. Turn away. What we see in these two chapters are two basic principles. The first is that we are to be people of our word. David wrote in Psalm 15, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? And then he gives a list of things, who this person could be. And he says, he who keeps an oath even when it hurts. If you make a promise, if you make a commitment, even if you got screwed in the deal, even if somebody lied to you, if somebody deceived you, person of God is to keep their word. We need the grace of God for this to happen. Because we can think of all different ways to get out of it. All different, I don't know, conditions to say, well, no, because you lied here or you didn't give me the whole truth, therefore I'm not bound by my promise. I think it should also tell us that we need to be careful before making promises. Because to make a promise is to make it to God. That is a profound reality. We're to be people of our word. Then with regard to our fathers here on Father's Day. We may blame our fathers for various things or circumstances in our lives. 
We may say it's because of the way my dad raised me or treated me. Or we may give them credit and say, I'm the way I am because of my dad, because of my father. But we can never forget that each one of us is responsible and we will all have to give an account. Without question, without question, some fathers have done despicable things, have done incredible damage in the lives of their children, and their children bear the scars. But when we stand before God, we can't point the finger at dad and say it's his fault. We bear the responsibility. We can also be grateful for the good things that have happened in our lives as a result of our fathers. But when we stand before God, again, we can't point to our dad and say, well, you have to let me in because my dad is a righteous man. Each one of us as individuals will have to give an account. Each one of us as individuals is responsible. But I would say in either case, for a father who's done incredible damage, for a father who has done wonderful things in the lives of his children, in either case, we are to be grateful because it is through these men that God gave us life. And I'm not for a moment discounting those who have suffered abuse and other things at the hands of their fathers, but it is through their fathers that God gave us life. And on this day, Father's Day, we are reminded of that reality. We have life because of our fathers. And we are to be grateful. We are to be grateful. But we're also to remember that we are all responsible for our actions. We cannot say, oh, I, I'm this way or I'm that way because of my dad. I'm not, to say, I'm not going to say that's not true. But what I will say is we are responsible. We cannot blame them. We, we choose our actions, we act on our own, and we are responsible. For the exiles, for the people still back in Jerusalem and Judah, they're looking back. Yeah, it's, it's those guys before us, our forefathers. We read in Psalm 106, we and our forefathers have sinned. Yeah, your forefathers have, but you have too. We have too. We bear responsibility. And the soul that sins will die. And God takes no pleasure in that. certainly some deep things for us to think about. Let's pray together. Father, what we find in chapter 17 is so counterintuitive to us. The idea that we have to keep our word even to people who are despicable, people who are of bad character, or people who may deceive us. 
You are in control. Jacob had been promised. Rebecca had been when she was carrying him in her womb that the older would serve the younger. And how that would have happened, we don't know and we'll never know because Jacob lied. Somehow we think that deception is necessary to get the things that we want or the things that we think we should have. I fear that too carelessly we make promises. We enter into agreements. We fail to recognize that we are in fact making a promise to you. But oftentimes we make promises to you, particularly in dark times when things are chaotic. We make promises that when the darkness is gone, we then forget about and fail to keep. We are to be people of our word. Help us to remember that. And then as we saw in chapter 18, we are responsible as individuals. We can't push off the blame on someone else. We will one day stand before you. We are on this day in a particular way grateful for our fathers through whom you gave us life. And because they are human, they are not perfect. There may have been things that they did that have harmed or scarred or not. But in any case, we are grateful for them. And may we not either put the blame on them or give them all the credit. We must make choices ourselves. Being, word, being people of our word and realizing individual responsibility, I think in today's world just sounds so foreign. May your spirit drive these truths home as we think about them in the days to come. Thank you for bringing us together today. It's the beginning of a new week. May your spirit and your grace go with us. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through this world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.